morning, everyone. Dirk announced that we have a, an upcoming uh, parenting seminar, and we're looking forward to that. Um, but with the weather we've been having, I think we should plan like some picnics or beach days or something. This is uh, 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 an extension of our summer and uh, love to enjoy the, uh, the weather that we've been having. Um, probably some of you had, uh, a, had, had seen this when it, when, it first, uh, when it first took place back in, in 1977. Uh, it was on March 27th on a runway in the Canary Islands when a Pan Am 747 was just sitting in the run, runway waiting to take off when an incoming uh, KLM uh, jet just came barreling out of the fog and sliced the top off of it. Uh, the KLM jet instantly went into flames and uh, everyone, everyone died. But the, initially, the, the uh, damage to the Pan Am seemed less severe. Yes, the top had come off of the plane. Uh, yes, there were uh, flames could be seen, but everyone initially seemed like they were okay. The passengers, though, were faced with this sudden decision. What do we do? Uh, We've just seen seen something that you would never, uh, never dream of, never, never want to see, and so they had to decide what they would do. Paul Heck was 70, 65 at the time, and he was sitting on the plane with his wife and friends. Uh, they were en route from their California retirement residence to a Mediterranean cruise, looking forward to getting away and enjoying uh, a special time together. When the KLM jet hit, he did what most people didn't do. He immediately unbuckled his, his seatbelt, stood up, grabbed his wife's hand, and he said, follow me. Went straight down the aisle uh, to, uh, to a hole in the side of the airplane, and out they went. They jumped out the side of the plane. But just before his wife jumped out of the plane, she glanced back, and she saw stid- sitting there in front of her, one of, one of the friends uh, from her retirement residence, a woman by the name of Lorraine Larson. And she describes her just sitting there, her mouth was slightly ajar, like, and, and actually her hands were still, she said her hands were still folded in her lap. She was just stunned, looking forward. And, and in fact, the majority, the great majority of the passengers on that plane were doing exactly the same thing, just in stunned silence, not knowing what to do, how to respond, and how, how to uh, react to, uh, to this, what was for them the biggest decision of their life. Within a minute, the plane was engulfed in flames. And 326 of the 396 passengers on board that day died and from all reports, they didn't have to. Planes are designed to empty quickly. Um, and yet, most people didn't do what Paul Heck had, and his wife did. They survived that day. They survived what, what became, you take the KLM and you take the Pan Am together, the, the, the deaths, it was the greatest disaster in aviation history. But Paul Heck and his wife survived that day for two reasons. First, Paul had been in a theater fire as a young child, and he knew the fear of the fire. He knew how quickly fires can spread. He knew that you don't 
um, mess around with fires. You, when you see one, you move quickly and you respond immediately. Second, while waiting for t- takeoff, he did what most of us don't do. You know, when they, do, they, do, they run through the safety instructions, he actually took out the uh, diagram of, of the jet and he showed his wife, see here, this is where our emergency exit is. He had a healthy enough fear of the fire uh, from a, a young child that when he gets on planes, he looks at the safety diagram and he notices where they are and decided to point that out to his wife. Sees fire, he moves immediately. He knows where to go, he's got a plan, and he reacts. So experience, and a, ex- experience that had given them this healthy fear as well as a little bit of study had given him a strategy to respond when he was faced with the biggest decision of his life. And, and those two things are really at the, the foundation of what we're trying to do in this series in Proverbs. We're trying to say most people, when they face big decisions, they do so in a bit of a daze. They do so unprepared uh, and often not conscious of many of the, the issues that are at stake. And with we, we, we looked at last week how the fear of the Lord, a healthy reverence and respect for who God is and, and what he does, that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And just what we're doing in the rest of this series is adding to that fear a little bit of study, a little bit of foundational truths that form the foundation of how we respond to the different areas of life where wisdom counts the most. And today we're, we're looking in, uh, into, uh, again, very foundational. We'll get into some specific areas of wisdom uh, in the coming weeks. Today we deal with decisions. Just in general, what is our strategy for tackling some of the big decisions in our life as well as the small one? We make de- dozens of small decisions every day, right? We, we'd make small decisions, but those small decisions, they affect our character and our reputation. They add up to habits and patterns, and they set the course of our lives. And in addition, though, to those small decisions, many of you, even over this coming year, you'll face some big decisions. You will make decisions about, uh, about some big areas of your life that you know will really shape you. They'll, they'll shape the, the general path that your life is going to take for maybe the next decade, maybe f- for the rest of your life. Big, big decisions. How do you approach them? How are you going to tackle them? What, what, what is going to be your game plan and your strategy for, for dealing with those? So like the safety diagram that Paul Heck and his wife read and were able to use that to get off the plane when that decision confronted them, we're trying to look to Proverbs to give us a strategy to deal effectively with, with the decisions that, that uh, confront us. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 3. And I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 6. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. It says this, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor, good success in the sight of God and man. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now I want to start by looking at verses 1 and 2. And we're just going to work through uh, two Proverbs at a time uh, through, through this passage. But just start by looking at verses 1 and 2 and seeing that to make wise decisions, we need to put first the commands of God. God's commands form like the, the rails within which we seek God's will. To make wise decisions, we need to put first the commands of God. Now, verse 1 gives the appeal to not forget my teaching and let your heart keep my commandments. And it, it seems obvious when you make a decision, you consider the, the commands of God. We run through in our mind, what are some of the commands that relate to the decision that I'm making? That seems really obvious. And yet, often it's not. For, for many people, obedience is, is something that they think of when they're faced with temptation. They were, oh yeah, there's that command. I, I need to resist this temptation. Often in those times, people will turn and think of the commands of God, but often when they're faced with a, with a decision in front of them, they're not so quick to look to what God's word might, might teach in those areas. God, God's commands form the boundaries within which we make wise decisions. And so when we overstep those boundaries, we're inviting both God's displeasure, we are walking into foolishness, and we are inviting his discipline in our lives. Romans 12.2 reminds us that it's as we renew our minds in his word that we're able to discern the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So there's this connection in God's mind between understanding his word, growing in our, in our discernment of his, his commands, and understanding his perfect will. God's commands are like the designer's laws. They're, they're true whether you're aware of them or not. They're true whether you believe them or not. They're, they're just, they're true. God is, is, is telling you up front how life works and whether you're, whether you're into that or not, whether you agree or not, they, they, they still stand. If you walk off a building, you will experience the consequences of the law of gravity, whether you did well in elementary science class or not, whether you studied uh, Newton's law or not, you will experience gravity. And, and God's laws work the exact same way. His commands work the same way in our lives. We ignore them and we feel the consequences and the pain of, uh, uh, of having overstepped them. We pay the price when we break them. And so God is here urging us to renew our minds in his law, to take the time, as Paul Heck did, to understand what the plan is, to give ourselves and to start and give priority to God's commands. And the problem is that we're often caught off guard by decisions. It would have been too late when Paul saw fire to start flipping through manuals and say, where, where was that thing? Where, where's the exit again? It, it, uh, often when we find ourselves confronted with a decision, it's uh, too late to, to begin any in-depth study. We just don't know what the commands might be that relate to the issue. And so on one hand, it's, it's an appeal to us to be into God's word in preparation for that time when we are confronted with a decision. But it, 
one of the other things that Scripture teaches us is, is that God has put authorities in our life to help guide us when we're stuck, when we need help. It's not a coincidence, I don't think, that verse 1 starts with the words, my son. The phrase gets repeated all through the book of Proverbs, and we're reminded that wisdom is so often transferred from the authorities in our lives, that God will work through those authorities to communicate truth and help and and wisdom. Seeking input from authorities in, in our lives is essential to a life that's committed to growing in wisdom. The problem is, all of these things that I've mentioned so far are difficult for us today. We may turn to God for hope or comfort, but if we're honest, we struggle to take God's commands as seriously as we ought. Renewing our minds seems like a great idea in principle, but it involves setting aside time and reading, two things that we find enormously difficult in our culture today. And while we may get inspiration from singers, celebrities, and soulmates, often when authorities speak into our lives, we think we know better. Doesn't matter whether it's mom, dad, teacher, pastor, uh, youth leader, Sunday school teacher, something in us wants to do this when authorities speak. And as a result, often our, our decisions are guided by our feelings or by our circumstances. We may even throw up a prayer, God, guide me. But unless it's also accompanied by a seeking of God's will from the scriptures, unless it's rooted in God's commands, and unless it's revealed by his, his word, then that, even that prayer, God, guide me. God can graciously guide you, but he has given you a strategy for making the decisions of your life. And he wants us to seek him in his word. To make wise decisions, we need to put first the commands of God. But to make wise decisions, we also need to think on the character of God. A deepening grasp of God's character helps us to see life from God's perspective. There are so many areas of life that that aren't neatly spelled out by by, uh, commands and, and principles in Scripture. To make decisions, we need to think on the character of God. I want you to see how this gets brought out in verse 3. It says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, steadfast love and faithfulness may just seem to you like nice words. Oh, loving, faithful. Those are, those are nice abstract concepts. But in the Old Testament, those are more than just nice abstract concepts. They're code words for the heart of God. They become uh, references that as soon as you see them in Scripture, you're supposed to remember this amazing event in, in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where Moses had asked God, show me your glory. And God said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll pass before you. But he reveals himself in, in these words where he, he talks about uh, who he is and what the, the heart of his character. Exodus 34, 6, he declared himself to be the God who, among other things, is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That, when you want to think, who is God? He's the God who is 
not just got a little bit, he is abounding, is overflowing with steadfast love and faithfulness. Those words get repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament as a reference for the, the character, the defining qualities of who God is. Psalm 86.15, for instance, says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 100, 100 verse 5 repeats the same qualities when it says, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. So the point is, when, when Proverbs 3.3 3 just says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, it's not just talking about those qualities in the abstract. It's calling us to remember the heart and defining qualities of God himself. So what are you supposed to do with the steadfast love and the faithfulness of our God? The verse says, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. I mean, you, you could get a necklace, right? This could be your excuse to, you know, I, I, I need a new necklace with these words written on them. But the point is that to grow in wisdom, you need to remember who God is and what he's like. To make wise decisions, we need to remember the depth of his love. To remember particularly how he proved his love for us on the cross. And to let that sink in. To let it become engraved on, on, on our hearts. We remember his faithfulness. We remember how faithful he's been to you. We remember how faithful he's been to his people throughout the generations. And we don't just check the box and say, um, God's check. Like, like, does anybody not believe in the love of God? No, we, we, don't, we, we don't not believe in it. We just believe it very casually and very lightly. So we bind them around our neck. Cover yourself with post-it notes if you need to. Write yourself Google reminders if you need to. But do whatever you can and whatever you need to make the character of God saturate your understanding of, of life and God's relationship with you. You don't have the power to do what God says if you don't realize how much he really cares for you. You won't make loving decisions if you haven't first received and enjoyed his love in your life. And you won't choose to be faithful if you don't remember God's faithfulness in your life. It's his love. It's his faithfulness that then fuels a, a life of love and faithfulness. David is a perfect example of this. He, he was a person that if you look at the trajectory of his life, he faced a series of impossible decisions many of which he couldn't prepare for or find a Bible verse about. But in Psalm 26.3, he said, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I kept my eyes on who you are, God, and I received the full depth of your love and faithfulness to, to, towards me. I kept praising you for who you are, and then I set my heart and resolve to be to other people who you are in my life. That, that is the dy dynamic of a life of wisdom. It's a dynamic of the Christian life. You, you see in verse, in verse 3 here, Psalm 26, 3, those two words again, steadfast love and faithfulness, kept his eyes on God and kept seeking to walk in God's ways. 
grasping the fullness of God's love and faithfulness helps heal the stubbornness in our hearts as well. I talked about that since it, it's what gives us the motivation to continue to love, to continue to show faithfulness. Watch how Psalm 32, 8 and 9 describes this dynamic. God speaking here, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is good. This is what we need in the course of decisions. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God understands what we're going through, promises to, to guide us, to direct us, to give us wisdom. But then he says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. God's saying, I'm going to guide you. I I will direct you. But don't be so stupid. Don't don't be like a mule. Don't be the person that just doesn't get it. I've given you my word and I'll direct you in it. But if you're closing your ears to what I have to say, if... If you're the kind of, uh, of person that needs to be dragged along and, 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 and reefed on, on with, on, to, to get someone to go anywhere, that, that's not the kind of relationship I want with you. I want you to grow in your knowledge of who I am. And as, as you are growing in your knowledge of who I am, I will reveal myself to you and I will make the path clear. But, but don't, be sitting back waiting that every, every last step needs to be um, uh, de- detailed for you. You grow in understanding. You grow in your knowledge of who I am. You walk within the rails of the commands of Scripture that I've given you, and I will gladly lead you. So to make wise decisions, we put first the commands of God. They're the rails within which we walk in a path of wisdom. We also think much on the character of God and particularly his love and faithfulness towards us. And that in turn drives and motivates and directs our uh, decisions and the path of wisdom that we would take. There's one final leg in the stool of wise decision making. To make wise decisions, we need to trust in the goodness of God. We can know wisdom, but unless we accompany that wisdom in our head with full-hearted faith and trust commitment, we won't act on it. To make wise decisions, we need to trust in the goodness of God. And Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 are perhaps some of the most famous words in all of the Bible. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. These verses will we'll just confirm a few things here. First of all, these, these verses remind us that we are to trust in God, not just his ethics, right? The trust, the full weight of our trust is to be in a person, not just in a set of rules. If we're going to make wise decisions, following religion or morality just won't give us the, the, the help and the strength and the discernment that we need. Trusting in the Lord means literally putting your life in God's hands. Trusting that he knows better than you do what is best for your life. Recognizing him as creator, as designer, as the one who sets the path of wisdom. Who is warning warning us of consequences for overstepping his bounds. The problem is that we like to trust in the Lord with all our heart when it's not inconvenient for us to do so. 
we, we do love to trust in the Lord with all our heart when it seems reasonable to us, when we understand exactly how things fit together. If, if God agrees with our basic sense of la- logic and rationality, we're happy to trust him. We like to trust in the Lord with all our heart as long as it doesn't involve much sacrifice or inconvenience. Th- those are typically the things that we, we trust in the Lord, but we really want to see things line up pretty much the way we like to walk and, and decide. That's not the kind of trust that this verse is talking about, though, is it? Trust in the Lord here is this deep-seated conviction that God's way is best. It's a sense that he is the one that needs to guide the decision. He is the one that I trust in. That's why it adds, and do not lean on your own understanding. I, I think that many people like to hope in God and trust in themselves. We hope in God and trust in ourselves. We hope that God will work out everything the way we want it. But when it comes to the decision and the way we go about it and really the the things that we come down to, we're kind of counting that we've got the best idea. We think that we've got it figured out. We're just hoping that God will work things out when we do things our own way. So we end up making a lot of foolish decisions which lead to a lot of foolish consequences and then we say, what happened, God? I was hoping in you. Yeah, you were hoping in him, but you're trusting in yourself. And the verse says to do something quite different than that. It says not to lean on your own understanding. Be suspicious of your natural instincts, particularly when there's any sense of tension with God's word. You're, you're suspicious of, of the way that you naturally come at decisions, the way that you naturally want to respond. And instead, you have this rock-solid conviction, God's way is best. God's plan for me is a path of blessing. We put our whole weight of faith and trust in God and his wisdom and his plan. And we believe that he will guide us, that his plan is good. It's amazing to me how easily we can convince ourselves that we know better than God, that you know, I, I understand what it says, but in my situation, in these circumstances, like, surely that's, you know, I, I've just, this is, must be the way. That's what the Bible calls foolishness. Proverbs twenty eight twenty six says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Anytime. Anytime you approach a decision in your life and you say, I, I've, I, I've got this figured out. I, the Bible might say something differently, but it's okay. I, 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 know, I know what this, in this situation, I know better. You are inviting God's displeasure, God's consequences, and God's discipline in your life. But it's not just trusting your own instincts that leads you away from God's wisdom. Often we just follow the crowd or, or, or we'll make decisions that are based in fear, rooted in a fear of what people will think. Or maybe what a, it may not just be what people think. It may be what one person thinks. That one person can dominate our decision-making and it's out of fear of them that we choose paths that the Bible calls foolish. 
Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I've seen people deny the deepest part of themselves out of fear of another individual. And they walk, into, they walk into foolishness. They walk into bitter consequences because they don't have the courage to trust in the Lord, to trust in his path and his goodness, his wisdom. Making wise decisions requires courage because so often it, it requires swimming upstream. It invo- involves going against the crowd, going against the, the consensus. Fascinating experiment done by researchers at Leeds University. They, they had this large hall and they asked groups of people to just walk around aimlessly. So just walk around the room um, aimlessly. And before they, they launched the experiment, they, they had called, a, called a, <laughs> a few people aside and they gave them very detailed and specific instructions of the path that they were to take in the room. And so when they got into the room, they, they started to walk very confidently around the room in, in a prescribed pattern. And what they found was that it didn't matter how small a group of people that they gave these instructions to, nor how large the group of people that was in the room, within minutes, everybody started following them. And they started, they, what they concluded, they did it with large groups, small groups, they, they tested, they concluded all it takes is five relatively confident people, 5% relatively confident people to influence an entire group. They could have up to 200 people as long as 10 of them were walking confidently in a specific uh, direction. Everybody else in the room would follow them. And so if you know that that's, if, if you know that that's in your heart, if you know that that is part of the human fallen condition, we, fall, we follow the leader, we follow the person next to us, then be suspicious of your natural instincts. Because as the Pan Am uh, example told us, often human instincts are wrong. Often the people that we are following are walking very confidently in the wrong direction, and they're lost. And if we're going to make wise decisions, we need the courage to be able to put our full weight of trust in God and in his plan. Verse 6 reminds us that trust in God isn't just reserved for religious decisions either, right? It says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So don't look, just look to God in your crises. In all your ways acknowledge him. Don't just look to God on Sunday. In all your ways acknowledge him. Don't just look to God as a last resort. All your ways acknowledge him. And I think the text means all your ways. Acknowledging God in all your ways means trusting God with all of your plans. It it means trusting God with your sexuality. You you don't sacrifice God's commands to purity, for instance, in order to, to win a guy or to keep a guy. Acknowledging God in all your ways means trusting his plans for your family. 
It's a reminder that the latest psychologist really doesn't know better than God how to raise your family. We acknowledge him in all our ways. Acknowledging God in all your ways means trusting his plans for your finances. It, 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 it's a reminder to us that when we give God our leftovers, that, that's what happens when we don't trust him with our support and our provision. Acknowledging God in all of our lives flows from a healthy fear of the Lord and it flows from an understanding and conviction about who God is and how deeply he loves us and how faithful he is in our lives. He's a God worth trusting. If that wasn't enough, I, hopefully you noticed that I skipped over these. Hopefully you don't do this in your own reading. You come to reading, you, you find all the things it says to do and skip over everything else. I, I did that because I wanted to save the best for last. Because this whole passage, and you will find the entire book of Proverbs, is chock full of rewards for the path of wisdom. It reminds us again and again of the precious blessings that accompany the path of wisdom, as well as the bitter consequences of making foolish decisions. Even just remembering how high the stakes are, uh, both the blessings of wisdom and the painful consequences of foolishness. So when, for instance, when verse 1 reminds us to put first the commands of God, it's followed quickly in verse 2 with the encouragement that God's commands will actually add length of days and years of life and peace to you. See, God's commands will protect us from decisions that will cut short our lives, that'll rob our lives of of time, rob our, our, our lives of peace. When in verse 3 calls us to think on the character of God, especially his love and faithfulness, it, it's followed right behind it in verse 4 with the encouragement that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. It, it's saying that letting God's character saturate who we are and how we respond to the issues of life invites his blessing. It's a key to effectiveness in life and relationships. And finally, when verse 5 urges us to trust in the goodness of God and to acknowledge him in all our ways, it's followed, as you'll see in verse 6, by the encouragement that he will make straight your paths. He will make them straight. It's not a promise that God will give you everything you want. It's not is this is a, a straight line to the life that you wanted to live, the way that you get to do it your way. It's not saying that, but it is an incredible promise that God will work to remove the obstacles that stand between you and blessing. He won't keep you wandering around in the desert as the Israelites did. When you, when you talk about straight paths, the, the, the uh, opposite of that is the wandering paths that the Israelites were forced to in the desert. He will deliver you from a life of aimlessness, a life of purposeless wandering, having to learn the same lessons over and over and over again. Because God doesn't give up on us. If we refuse to learn the lesson the first time, it's going to come a second time and a third time until we get it. And he's saying, you're uh, trusting me in in this way, setting your heart to, to, on my character will deliver you from that. It'll make your path straight. 
So let's lay hold of this life of wisdom as a church. I pray that as we go through this, that you and I will make decisions, not only about how the decisions that are confronting us, but how we approach those decisions. And, and that we will lay hold of those blessings as a church, that you will start to make wise decisions that glorify God, and that we would enjoy the blessings and the promises that God holds out for those who do. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, left to ourselves, we would make a lot of dumb decisions. And we feel the pain of those decisions as well as your disappointment. So forgive us, Father, for going our own way and following the crowd. Help us to trust you enough to do what you say. Give us the courage to acknowledge you in all of our ways, to truly trust you with all our heart and stop believing in ourselves and thinking that we know better. We praise you as the God of steadfast love. You're the faithful one. And if we could only grasp the depth of your love for us, it would change us. Change how we see you. It would change how we see our lives. It would change how we respond to others. Open our eyes to see the fullness of who you are and saturate us with your character that we might walk in wisdom. For we ask you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.